0: hey hey everyone anthony fantano here internet's busiest music nerd hope you're doing well and it's time for another episode of the needle drop podcast where we go over some of the best reviews and segments from the needle drop and the fantano channel over the past week or so we have a ton of reviews for you in this episode one of the new tyler the creator album igor fantastic album that sees tyler embracing more elements of soul and r&b it's a concept album too Do not miss that review Also going to be talking about the latest efforts from Vampire Weekend They're back Big Thief One of the bigger names in indie folk at the moment Also going to be talking up the new Carly Rae Jepsen and Injury Reserve albums Two of the most interesting voices in pop and hip-hop at the moment Also got a review for the new Denzel Curry track Speedboat That's going to be this episode Here we go But bam Bam and it's time for a review of the new Tyler the Creator album, Igor. This is the sixth full length album from one of the most polarizing and uncompromising rappers and producers of this generation, Tyler the creator. It's been a few years now since the release of Tyler's most critically acclaimed album, Yet Flower Boy, which was a pretty amazing moment for him in his discography. Easily his most consistent record yet in terms of style and quality. Better production and lyrics on this thing, quality features, as well as smooth fusions of hip-hop and soul throughout almost every instrumental here. Not only was Tyler writing some of his best songs to date on this album, but a lot of the amateur and childishly edgy characteristics of his past works that really held his music back, kind of melted away. It's like a switch was flipped and we were being presented with an all-new Tyler here. And Igor presents us with a brand new Tyler the Creator as well. Like a few of Tyler's previous projects, Igor sees our hip-hop anti-hero embracing a new character and a new narrative. Igor is more than just another persona, though. It's also a vehicle for Tyler to express his heartbreak and explore more singing and tuneful songwriting. Flower Boy definitely saw Tyler gravitating more toward these sounds, and maybe with his next record, some of his longtime fans were hoping that he would come through with an album that was more of a true blue hip hop experience. But Igor is not that. The instrumentals on this record embrace even more soul, even more R&B. And not to say that there aren't points on this album where Tyler raps, there are. He even makes sure to work a few bangers into the mix, like New Magic Wand, as well as What's Good. But these cuts are more the exception than the rule. Again, most of the tracks on this album fit into more of a soul categorization, with some of the instrumentation on them throwing it back to the 60s and 70s, such as A Boy Is A Gun and Are We Still Friends, as well as Earthquake, to a degree. And it's a weird vibe. Tyler's embrace of these sounds feels like a combination of several different things. The tone of the instrumentation, the kind of messy production, and the singing on here leaves me feeling like I'm hearing Tyler be a little tongue-in-cheek. But given the narrative of these tracks, it does feel like he's trying to express some genuine feelings here. The textures and timbers in the instrumentation are great too, but it's a decidedly rough presentation, a little lo-fi in the same way that Cherry Bomb was. Some of the mixes are kind of funny. But even though some of Tyler's lackluster production in the past has rubbed me the wrong way, with Igor it feels like it's coming from a place of skill. Essentially it's the difference between making a subpar recording because you can't make anything else other than a subpar recording, and going back to embrace a more flawed, gruff, raw aesthetic. Once you have gained the ability to make something as clean and as well-crafted as Flower Boy. It's almost post-punk in a way. Tyler's ability to subvert and mutate the smooth, jazzy, and sweet sounds of soul and R&B throughout multiple tracks on this album. It's also worth mentioning that it is painfully obvious that the work of Pharrell has been hugely influential to the instrumental front of this record too. Which, given Tyler's history, should be no surprise. He has been an unapologetic fan of Williams for a long time, but never before, in my opinion, has he embraced so many obvious Pharrellisms in his music this hard, but also kind of made them his own. The world that Tyler presents on Igor, and I do think it is a world, is vivid, it's seamless, it is immersive. While I'm mentioning influences in this review, I should also name drop rapper producer legend Madlib too, not only because of the artfully rough production and vintage samples placed throughout this album, but also the pitched vocals and character development that Tyler engages in on Igor also reminds me of some of Madlib's Quasimodo efforts. As far as the time goes, Igor also has an impeccable flow. There is really no excuse to leave until the last track is over, even if the narrative of the album doesn't follow the most obvious progression. On Igor's earliest moments, we already see the relationship that the album is based on in a moment of crisis, with Tyler begging his romantic interest here not to leave. And as the album progresses, we get different flavors of romantic toxicity, illustrating exactly why this relationship is crumbling in the first place. Things essentially reach a dead end with the revelation of I don't love you anymore. We also have a moment of finality after that with Are We Still Friends? Like volatile relationships themselves, the album is kind of like being stuck in the middle of a continuous tumble cycle, and when it's over you're too dizzy to decipher exactly what happened and who's at fault and how you can prevent it from happening again. Igor is an album that leaves the listener with, in my opinion, quite a few loose ends and unresolved feelings, but it's still a very satisfying and cathartic project. The song Earthquake is kind of mellow and maybe even a little funny at first glance, but with more listens it becomes clear that Tyler is actually pouring his heart into these squeaky, weird lead vocals. The heartbreak coming off the lyrics is tangible, even if there is a supremely large element of camp to what Tyler is doing here. There's also a Playboy Cardi feature on this track that is placed perfectly. His weird, baby-voiced verse uh, fits the aesthetic of the song quite well, and he is one of many very fantastic and impressive guests on this record, many of which are a little obscured and kind of buried in the mixes of particular tracks. I mean, they certainly add to the character and the flavor of this album, but there aren't a whole lot of features on this record that that stun or steal the spotlight away from the character and the persona and the story and the focus of the album, which ultimately I think is a good thing. If anything, the features, especially on a record like this, should be playing a more supportive role. The song, I think, right after this makes for a pretty interesting transition. I think the lo-fi production. lo-fi on this track obscures it, but this song is so friggin Kanye West, I have never heard Tyler write a song that is so obviously Kanye. This track, the instrumental here, some of the flows. It's the dance beat. It's the glistening synths. This sounds just like something Kanye would have rocked during the graduation era, frankly. It is a very solid tune, though, and given the aesthetic of the album, the narrative of the record, and the jazzy bridge that Tyler works into the track, he obviously puts his own spin on all of this. Running out of time, in my opinion, not a bad track, but easily the weakest of the more mellow and soulful cuts on the first leg of this record. I think the intro draws on a bit long, but it's still a necessary moment on the album, if not only for its swirling, cascading synth arpeggios and lush instrumental bridge. Also, super cold-blooded verse at the ending of this track, and what this song gives to the album narratively is that Tyler feels this relationship or his chances to save it, his ability to maintain this other person's interest, it's slipping away. He's losing his grip on it. All of the tracks up until this point do a very good job of setting the tone for the record, but after this we begin to enter banger territory. We get New Magic Wand, which is the first touch of of real emotional darkness on the album, in my opinion, which is forecast by the instrumental sinister electric piano, the kind of skittery, metallic bits of percussion in the instrumental that sound like spoons being hit onto dinner plates, the distant horror movie synths, the growling, distorted bass, of which there's quite a bit of on this entire album. Tyler's lyrics on this track seem to be coming from more of a place of extreme jealousy, violent psychosis, desperation. There is a love triangle angle presented in this track where Tyler essentially feels like he's competing with his Significant Other's ex-girlfriend for attention, for love. He says he needs to get her out of the picture. And he genuinely seems like he's going mad on this track. It's like this Norman Bates style of ah, ah. Total and absolute madness. And I also think this track illustrates exactly why the title of this record is what it is. We see this love, we see this relationship turning Tyler into Igor, uh, which is a name that typically is is associated with monsters with freaks with hideous beasts a boy is a gun is another stroke of genius in the track list here that is also obviously kanye inspired from the glamorous groove to the pitched vocal samples as well as some of the refrains on here you so motherfucking dangerous you so motherfucking dangerous this sounds exactly like something that would have landed on kanye's first couple of records not to mention that how come you the best to me i know you the worst for me You sweet as sugar, diabetic to the first degree. That is the most Kanye line that Kanye has never written. The rest of the lyrics on this track, though, do continue to expose why exactly this relationship that Tyler is in is so bad for him and the other person. Their exchanges and interactions are just absolutely hideous to the point where I'm waiting for the relationship to be over. But again, the tone changes on the very next track, Puppet, where Tyler now feels like he is being controlled by his addiction and his affection for this other person. Tyler's attitude, essentially doing a total 180 from the last track, and now he's bending over backwards and doing everything that he can to keep this person's affection. The song eventually turns cinematic with an instrumental shift, presenting these marching snares, sparse twinkling melodies, and dusty strings. It feels like a combo of an old-school soul song and like a harrowing Bright Eyes ballad. Kanye West himself also makes an appearance in the second half of this track. It's a little buried, but it adds quite a bit to the song and occurs just before the instrumental turns the track into a slow, downward elevator ride into hell. The track What's Good is easily the hardest and most aggressive cut on the entire record. I would say he's still in character here, though he does blatantly reference a car accident that he was in last year in the lyrics. We also hear this song right after a vocal snippet ending the song Puppet Off, where somebody is saying, but at some point, you come to your senses which is one of several moments on this album where you catch these casual spoken word snippets that sound like they're lifted from a conversation or an interview. Tyler even places one all by itself on the fourth track of the album and you might tune these moments out or not think all that much of them on first listen but please do pay attention because for the most part these little passages do tend to forecast whatever mood the next song is is moving into. Anyway, what's good? Fierce delivery, fierce flows, bold, noisy beat, truly evil attitude on this track. It's not my favorite tune on the entire record, but it is braggadocious. It is self-affirming, and it is pivotal to the evolution of this relationship and of Igor on this record. It's like continuously seeing the ego and the love of Igor balloon and pop, balloon and pop throughout this record. So now Igor has seen the light and the love this album is oriented around, it's gone gone, which is a very bright and summery tune. The instrumental here might be trying to symbolize the euphoric, bliss of breaking off a relationship that is very bad for you. There's very little on this track in terms of feelings of regret, even with lyrics like at least I had it instead of never, or maybe I'm too dramatic. This song is also a two-part track, because eventually we transition into the thank you side, which is built mainly off of a verse from Tyler, where he's sort of confirming that uh, he doesn't need this relationship, this is a good move for him. Him and this other person, were working off of two different blueprints in the midst of a genius set of bars that reference buildings and architecture. I also enjoy quite a bit the following track, I Don't Love You Anymore. Instrumentally and vocally, the song sounds so, small but emotionally this track is tyler throwing a temper tantrum he is stomping around and saying i don't love you anymore and it's hard to tell at points if he actually feels this way or if he's just saying this to convince himself that that's what he wants to Going deeper into the lyrics here, he does reveal emotions of, of wanting to move on but not necessarily knowing how. The instrumental on this track is dark, it's moody, it's painful, it's depressed. Not quite as happy about the breakup of this relationship as Gone Gone. And finally, Are We Still Friends is maybe one of my favorite closers of 2019. It brings back the hokey soul singer vibe of the first leg of the album, but I would say it goes even harder in that respect with Tyler's voice just spotlit on a stage in front of backing bass and guitar. Very gentle, you have some backup singers in there as well, kind of buried drums. The track builds up to this vocal freakout that is actually pretty amazing. It's a powerfully dramatic finish, but I can understand that you may not feel that way if you think the production is a little messy or muddier if you haven't listened to the entire album up until this point because this song makes way more sense when you're viewing it through the weird lens that Igor offers. Maybe the goofy background vocals or the uh, fake ass synth strings that are mixed very, very high. Uh, Maybe they don't do much for you. But this track is actually amazing when you consider that it is the climax of What's essentially Tyler doing the musical equivalent to a one-man play here. Of course, they're supporting musicians and artists, but you know what I mean. I do maybe have a few issues with the album, though. There are a few tracks where I think the structure and the development of the song could be better. Tyler also is wearing his influences on his sleeves very obviously throughout this record. Uh, to the point where it can be slightly distracting, and while I do like the lo-fi aesthetic, there are points where, in the long run of the tracklist, it does feel like it dampens the overall auditory experience. I might call it one-dimensional if not for the fact that the songs and narratives and emotions displayed throughout this album are so wide and... Vivid. I actually think the sound of this album is about as rich as the pink, black, white, gray color palette of the album art here. It's obviously limited, but still presents a very compelling and sort of unsettling image. Overall, I think Igor is a fantastic album, and is easily one of the best breakup albums of the decade. Which is no small feat, considering that we're literally right toward the end of this decade i'm feeling a decent to a strong nine on this thing transition into the next review Uh, it's time for a review of the brand new vampire weekend album father of the bride this record is the latest from the ivy league of indie pop Vampire Weekend. Sans original member Rostam, who separated from the group a few years ago, the gang is back. Although, according to the production credits, Rostam does have input engineering and production-wise on a couple of tracks here. Father of the Bride is Vampire Weekend's fourth full-length album. Believe it or not, it's been six years since the release of their last and critically acclaimed LP, Modern Vampires of the City. A record that featured some of the group's biggest singles and most lavish production yet, and despite the waiting period that Vampire Weekend have put fans through on this one, their popularity doesn't seem to have dropped off that far with this very album climbing up to number one on the Billboard album charts this week. And I suppose it's not hard to see why Vampire Weekend, as polarizing as they've been, they've always had a style all their own, something that no other group in their absence has been able to provide. Ezra's whimsical, tender, and occasionally fun songwriting, the band's impressive musicianship, which is typically executed with style, as well as their sharp fusions of pop and Baroque instrumentation and world music. As much as I dislike the usage of that term. But the teaser tracks to this record, of which there were quite a few, forecast a very different sound and album for Vampire Weekend. The track Harmony Hall, with its sort of glamish and very rich piano rock in the vein of the Rolling Stones. There was also the funky and tightly composed Sunflower featuring Steve Lacey of the Internet fame. The guitar licks and drums on this cut felt like something lifted off of an unknown Mortal Orchestra album. And as fun as some of the guitar work on this track is, the song itself in my opinion, is kind of forgettable. The song Big Blue is a small cut with big jam band vibes coming off of it. I love the tune, but I think some of the guitars weave in with the synth choral vocals awkwardly placed onto the track in a kind of hideous way. Not really crazy about the brevity of the song, either. The song This Life is folk-flavored pop that just radiates Paul Simon. It's eternally sunny and sounds like a bunch of bronze-skinned boomers rocking out with Hawaiian shirts unbuttoned, cargo shorts on, Jimmy Buffett tats. This song qualifies as one of maybe a few tracks on this record I might call post-dad rock. So already from the teaser tracks on this record, Vampire Weekend, were showing a pretty wide mix of sounds and styles. I should also mention that Father of the Bride is the band's longest album to date at 18 tracks and almost an hour of runtime. And while I did like a lot of songs off of this record, I'm really not crazy with how this album panned out. It is a bit of a long-winded mess, and the more it goes on, the more diminished the returns seem to be. I get it's been a while, and Ezra most likely has been sitting on a great deal of these tracks for a long time, but I would have much preferred hearing this album pared down to its best 30 to 40 minutes of material. It's certainly better than sitting through the auto-tuned aneurysm that is spring snow, or realizing how limited the songwriting on this record is. Sure, peppered throughout the lyrics on this album, there's different themes surrounding love, broken love, young love, marriage, but this album fails to build any kind of narrative around its incredibly narrow focus outside of the duets between Ezra and Daniel Haim, where they're singing together at seemingly different points of a relationship entering marriage in a rocky fashion, which is an idea and a concept rife with potential that Father of the Bride capitalizes on almost none of. Don't get me wrong though, because there are some very good tracks on this record. They're mostly on the front end of this thing, but once we get past the first leg of the record, I feel like the quality of every song thereafter is just like, I don't know, pulling a random card from a deck and you either get like an ace of spades, or like a two of clubs. There's the drab and uninteresting rich man, which is one of a few tracks on this record that features Ezra and company throwing in these forced, quirky production choices that just sound silly, don't add that much flavor to the instrumental, really just distract from the song. I'm just not getting a lot out of the dusty, lo-fi guitar loops painting the background of this cut, nor am I getting a lot out of the zany sound effects painting the background of the song How Long, which features some very nice writing from Ezra, easily one of the better hooks on the entire record, but the instrumental backdrop is pretty lackluster. There are also some really weird glitchy edits at certain points on the album, like on the opening cut, where you can hear the aftermath of the guitars being performed in the studio session like you're right there, also hearing the chorus of singers on this track digitally stretched out as they enter into the song. And I know these elements are supposed to give this album a raw and an intimate feel, but it just comes off forced. This is not a lo-fi record, we're on Sony, it's Vampire Weekend, Come on. Steve Lacey on this track delivering some deadpan background vocals, some of the robotic vocal effects on Ezra's voice, the blurting horns, the Latin drum section that comes off like a drunk dad samba. Again, another moment on the album where it feels like the instrumentation would rather distract from the song than serve it. The song My Mistake is a horrid attempt at trying to pull off some intimate, sad, downtrodden piano jazz, which Ezra's voice just was not built for. Meanwhile, the song Sympathy is an acoustic rock rager. The low-down bass line, the fierce strumming, the hand claps on this cut feels like something out of an old Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds record, but with what sounds like a synthesizer sampling a chorus of singers working in a very clunky, awkward melody. However, I do love the ending of the track. The drums that bust in, they're heavy as hell. The double bass is wow. I'm sorry if I'm complaining for a lot of this review, but I really do feel like Vampire Weekend unfortunately embraced quantity over quality on this one. The band is obviously playing it more off the cuff, which isn't a bad thing if wherever your artistic whims take you leads to one near genius moment after the next, like the White Album. But Father of the Bride is no white, even on unbearably white. I will say though, even though there were a number of tracks on this record that had production choices that sort of bugged me. A majority of these moments are still at least listenable, and there are quite a few tracks from this record that I think are great. All the Danielle Haim appearances on this record I think are fantastic, not only in terms of the vocal chemistry between her and Ezra, but these songs attached are really solid too. Haim also has some pretty prominent background vocals throughout multiple points, most notably on the track Stranger, where the relationship themes throughout the record go domestic. With its rich pianos and funky horns, the track essentially sounds like a husband and wife dancing together in their underwear at their $500,000 summer home at the Cape. As I mentioned earlier, Harmony Hall, amazing song, amazing single. I'm not really surprised that Rostam had a huge hand in the production on this track because it is so friggin' good. It sort of makes me wonder how amazing the production could have been on the rest of the record if, if... he was on the rest of the record still though ezra was no so. when it came to the songwriting on this track too i don't want to live like this but i don't want to die is easily one of the best refrains of 2019. the song bambina is amazingly cute and undeniably catchy with its killer percussion and the boogie coming off the fuzzy guitar leads on this one it's one of the few songs on this record where its instrumental quirk actually works in its favor the song this life i mentioned earlier amazing also the closing cut jerusalem new york berlin is a passable, sad closer for the album. Yeah, it's, it's a decent album, but there's just too much flab. Too much flab in the track list. And I'm not sure if there's much more to say than that. They're They're just not all bangers, sadly. They're not all bangers. And I think I'm going to leave it at that. I'm feeling a decent six on this one. Transition. Zition. into Into the next next review. review. UFOF! This is the latest full LP from indie folk Brooklynites, Big Thief, a group who's been wowing underground music fans with their mystical sound for a couple of years now, even though it's failed to resonate with me up until this point. Though there were a few teaser tracks to this new album of theirs that did impress me, so... I was definitely looking forward to this release. If you are unfamiliar with Big Thief, a great deal of the band's appeal comes down to the singing and songwriting of frontwoman Adrian Lenker, who did actually have a pretty decent solo album drop last year. If you didn't hear it, I highly recommend trying it out. Adrian's expressive, nasally, but also subtle vocals are akin to some of the most unique in indie. I'm thinking of artists like Coco Rosie or Joanna Newsom, but she also has plenty of vocal quirks that are all her own. Combine this with the band's winding, enchanted guitar passages, and you've got a pretty spellbinding sound, when Big Thief is at their best anyway. The title track is a prime example of this. It's a song whose Eerie chord progressions and hushed lead vocals feels like a fusion of Radiohead and Sufjan Stevens. And as long as we're listing indie heavyweights, the mathematical but folky guitar progressions on the track Strange read like something out of the Grizzly Bear playbook when they were in their prime. The band continues to show quite a bit of versatility on the track Cattails, too, which is not your average piece of urban outfitters indie folk, as the rich finger-picked acoustic guitars on this cut feel like the genuine musical backdrop to a great traditional piece of folk music. Of course, Lenker's singing brings an absolutely different vibe than the somewhat backwater feel of the guitars on this track, but it fuses well. And gotta say, I love the lyrics on this track as well. The themes of empathy as well as travel are uh, pretty evocative and beautiful. The band suddenly transitions into a shoegazy sound on the second-to-last track on this album as well, Jenny. The track has a slow build, some subtle singing, and a very fuzzy distortion. Almost seems inspired by Blonde Redhead, but a tad eerier. The song at the core of this track is great. The hook is catchy despite it being so subtle. I also love the the sensual pacing of the cut, too. It's both sexy and chilling. And surprisingly enough, the song Century has a mellow left-field rock-and-roll quality to it in the vein of the Velvet Underground, or maybe like some early Lou Reed Walk on the Wild Side type stuff. It's very sweet, it's very serene, a little groovy, and a little subversive. But a good deal of the time on UFOF, there isn't really that strong of a song at the core of what Big Thief is doing. From stands, out as an example of this. The pacing of this track is absolutely tedious. The vocal performance from Lenker is aggravating and mumbly and standoffish. The guitar passage and drumming on the song are kind of intricate, but the piece doesn't really develop compositionally all that much across the four minutes of the track. It it really is monotonous. Keep in mind this track is one of a couple on this album that were originally featured on Lenker's solo effort last year, and I much prefer those versions to what we're getting here on this Big Thief album. The track Betsy also leads me to believe the band thinks Lenker's weird vocal quirks are a bigger selling point than they are, if you can argue that trying to sing out of the low end of your vocal range is actually a quirk. Open Desert and a few other tracks as well just hit me as being very, very repetitive to a certain point. And not to say that repetition or linear songwriting is inherently bad, it's not. But really, it's all about balance, and if Big Thief is to move forward with tracks like these, I would hope in the future that their composition and their performance would be a bit more dynamic. There's also the matter of several tracks on this thing fizzling out at one point, or just ending very abruptly. There are very few in the way of truly solid endings and finishes on a great deal of cuts from this record and despite liking a majority of tracks from a solo effort last year the mainly acoustic orange really left me out to dry in its humdrum vocal melody and its basic uninspired chord progression really the only thing i got out of this track were the harrowing lyrics the lyricism on this track is one of this record's truly chilling moments, and I I guess I will say as I wrap up this review, uh, generally the lyrics on this record are pretty good. Overall, I'm feeling very, very indifferent toward this LP. I just felt it to be very all over the place in terms of style and quality. It's sometimes monotonous, it's sometimes derivative, sometimes it trails off, and then sometimes it shows you uh, some moments of pure genius. It's arguably Big Thief's best record yet in terms of uh, some of the high points on here and the recording and the band being able to show off all the different things they can do. But I think what they've offered here is still quite a ways away from being stunning and cohesive as an album. I'm feeling a strong five to a light six on this thing. Transition, Transition into, into the into next, the next review. review. And it's time for a review of the new Carly Ray Jepsen album dedicated. This is the newest full-length LP from Vancouver Pop songstress Carly Rae Jepsen. Carly's career has had a trajectory that is arguably more interesting than most pop stars. She totally blasted into the mainstream on the earlier side of this decade thanks to the lavish and lovely single, Call Me Maybe, and the so-so album attached to that song, Kiss, didn't really generate all that much buzz. But then Carly followed that album up with a record that was more obsessed with pop's past than its present, Of course, I'm talking about emotion. The songs on this thing were packed to the brim with modern, punchy production, but a lot of the grooves and the synth timbres on this album called back to the golden age of synth pop in the 1980s, and in a way that was tasteful, refreshing, not just an exercise in nostalgia. I wasn't in love with it, but my original review was fairly positive because the album for a modern pop record was pretty substantive. However, no single from this record achieved the major success of Call Me Maybe, but Carly's music this time around somehow resonated with an audience of listeners that typically look at pop a bit more skeptically. And when I say resonated, I mean deeply. I'm talking about groups of guys who are looking like this dude and mapping out the narrative of every Carly song, pulling them together and cracking the Carly Ray Jepson Da Vinci code. It was kind of funny to see a lot of dudes care about a pop album and a pop artist this much for the first time. But Carly, strangely enough, seems to have embraced this and her status as like a low-key pop icon. In 2016, she dropped what were essentially B-sides from this record, which I thought were pretty enjoyable, maybe even more so than Emotion due to the organic presentation of the tracks as well as the tighter track listing. And now the next phase of Carly's career has come in the form of Dedicated. Given that she is a pop artist, for me as a listener there's always a concern that Carly is going to water down the sound that she forged on Emotion in order to appeal to a larger and trendier audience. And I thought that might end up being the case given some of the initial singles from this album, such as the tracks Too Much as well as Party For One, as sexual and as risqué as that song is for Carly. The song does kind of make up for the instrumental being so stereotypical though. Admittedly, the uh, the hook on this thing has been stuck in my head for days since revisiting it. But on the deep cuts here, Carly pretty much sticks to her guns and continues to celebrate vintage dance and synth The upside to this is we continue to get catchy, tasteful, and well-written cuts like Automatically in Love and want you in my room. But the downside to dedicated being so similar in tone and style to emotion is that the album doesn't really offer a new direction for Carly overall and it pretty much just feels like a second helping of emotion with a few underwhelming variations thrown into the mix. You have the sanitized and gentrified reggaeton beat on the track too much, the neutered reggae rhythm section on the cut I'll be your girl on the verses which is completely unnecessary especially since the hook is this good. It's just very cheap window dressing on a track that honestly doesn't need it. There's also the ridiculous and cinematic drum circle on the second to last track on the record. The song For Sure, combined with the shouty white girl group vocals, it sounds like a tryout for the Lion King soundtrack that kind of fell flat on its face. There may be a few additional issues as well on some tracks, like the song Right Words, Wrong Time. A song that features a very stereotypical modern pop formula of handing the listener an absolutely boring, do-nothing verse just so that they can be blown away by the explosive chorus that comes right after. It's got a lovely bridge and there are some instrumental elements to it that I like a lot, but it's still a semi-dud. The most satisfying portion of the entire record is easily the first leg, super solid. It features some of the best instrumentals on the entire record and also in this portion of the album, Carly can be heard breaking the Carly Rae Jepsen... uh, I don't know exactly what to call it. The Carly Rae Jepsen curse, the Carly Rae's streak of always singing about trying to chase after or attain or just being in a state of of longing for love and not actually getting it. This has been a major theme for many of Carly's songs up until this point. You can even hear her embracing this boldly on the big lead single to this album, Party For One. But on the song Everything He Needs, Carly can be heard going into explicit detail over the sexual tension going on in a relationship happening in real time. In pure Jepsen fashion, the song is more about the desire for sexual contact than it is about the act itself, but the romance that Carly's words are centered around on this track is much more tangible than it's been on her past work. The hook on this cut is kind of cute, it's a weird musical revision of the Harry Nilsson chorus from the song He Needs Me off the Popeye soundtrack. I love the sensual groove that's brought in the instrumental of this cut, the bright, cheery synth chords. I should also mention the track Julian, which is absolutely a kick-ass start to this record. It's a track about a guy that Carly just can't get over. She is haunted. By their time together, she is wondering when he is going to come home. Sharp vintage synth leads on this track, a shimmery bridge, very steady groove, fun from start to finish. Again, great start to the album. I love the nocturnal and low-key No Drug Like Me, which is as addictive as the title suggests. The song Now That I Found You is a fist-pumping dance-pop rager, with very tense synth chords on the verses, a great vocal buildup from Carly for the hook that is so explosive. When those 4-4 kicks come in, dude, it is pure euphoria. And the track certainly reminds me of some of the best fusions of house and pop music that came out of the 90s. The combination of dance and pop music is also repeated on the song Real Love, but the production and songwriting this time around are much more modernized, not so much like from 20 years ago, and the results are just as great. I also love the flirty lyrical fantasies on the track Want You In My Room. The transition the album makes here is a little jarring because the production is a lot more... Spacey and hollow than it is on every other track here. This song, of all the songs on the record, is trying its hardest at throwing it back to the 80s. The distant lead vocals, the glistening guitars, and like some of the robot background vocals as well. This this thing is definitely an old school cut. There's also the ignorance is bliss anthem, happy not knowing, and overall dedicated. While I'm also not really in love with this one either, it's a pretty solid pop record. It's not reinventing the wheel and also also compositionally as well as lyrically, Carly isn't necessarily the most unique pop star on the planet. But for the most part, she has impeccably good taste when it comes to songwriting, when it comes to instrumentals. She has good pop sensibilities, which continue to go vastly underappreciated in the mainstream. And despite the squad of producers and co-songwriters on this project, it all turns out pretty consistent outside of the handful of cuts that, to me, just... Felt really awkward, didn't really play to Carly's strengths, or just detoured into stylistic and instrumental directions that just felt silly. This thing is a genuine, mostly focused, pretty well-crafted pop record. An album that all fans of Emotion should listen to, do not miss out on this one. And if you're new to Carly Rae Jepsen, it's not really a bad start either. I'm feeling a decent two-strong seven on this one. Transition into the next review. And it is time for a review of the commercial debut album from Injury Reserve, Injury Reserve. Injury Reserve. Hip-hop trio, native to Arizona. It's been a little while now since Richie and Groggs and producer Parker Corey began making buzz with their debut mixtape in 2015, live at the dentist's office. And at the time when this thing dropped, I was blown away by their cutting-edge take on jazz rap as well as their knack for creating both total bangers and introspective sad boy anthems such as Kill the Vibe. The production was consistently visceral and creative and bubbly. The bars throughout each track were sometimes witty, sometimes conscious, sometimes ridiculous, sometimes aggressive. If there's one thing to know about Injury Reserve, it's that they do not want to be pigeonholed into one thing, which is something they've successfully avoided with each new project. And this has most likely been for the better, even if it's kind of led to the industry not knowing entirely what to make of them. One thing's for sure though, for injury reserve, it's about the music, and it's just about the music. Which showed in their 2016 mixtape, Floss, a project that showed some of the trio's best tracks yet, oh shit! all this money, songs that to this day I am shocked that they sit under a million views on YouTube. And the deep cuts on this thing were even more insane, like the trippy industrial banger "Eni Mini Miney Moe, or the jittery and head-crushing What's Goody, with an amazing feature from Cakes the Killer. And the trio's bangers kept coming on their next EP, Drive It Like It's Stolen, with See You Sweat, as well as Boom Boom Boom. But still, even at this point, very little in the way of viral acknowledgement of the trio's efforts. Thankfully, nods from the likes of Amine, as well as this new deal from Loma Vista Records has brought the trio some of the long overdue recognition they deserve and with that they essentially started dropping a new crop of singles in promotion of this new project tracks that were some of the group's most futuristic and conceptual songs to date. We have Jawbreaker featuring Rico Nasty and Proteins, a cut all about fashion and overspending on it in the social media age. The song isn't necessarily anti-capitalist or anti-looking good or anything like that. It's really a song that urges listeners as they express themselves through clothes to forge their own path with that and not mindlessly buy into whatever the most expensive hype beast trends are just for the sake of fitting in. The protein's hook on this track is absolutely unique for a hip hop song and the Rico nasty verse fits really nicely into the concept of the track. Meanwhile, Parker's instrumental on this track is great. It sounds like an international showy abstract piece of music soundtracking a fashion show. Then there's Jailbreak the Tesla, which is pretty much about hacking into a Tesla car. Parker on this instrumental develops this perfectly glitchy, noisy, post-industrial, deconstructed club beat, makes me feel like I'm being downloaded into the goddamn mainframe. Richie's first verse on the song sets the tone of the track really well, builds the concept up in a witty and entertaining way. Meanwhile, the Amine feature on the back end is absolutely hilarious, these references to Elon taking shrooms and Grimes' voice being the GPS, referring to himself as a black James Bond and saying, your engine go vroom, my engine go silent. Aesthetically, the song resembles more like a Sophie track or a PC music single, not your average hip-hop song, which I think just goes to show how unique Injury Reserve are. Karuna and Lime wasn't a bad taster for the album either, it's got an instrumental that sounds like an odd future throwback, but there's way better lyricism and lyrical chemistry between Richie and Groggs. Based off the singles alone, I was anticipating this was going to be Injury Reserve's most defining musical moment, their most groundbreaking record yet. But the deep cuts on here tell a slightly different story. For one, this is the shortest full-length project the trio has put out so far at 38 minutes, a chunk of which is padded out with these interlude cuts that don't really add that much to the flow. Whether you're talking about the QWERTY interlude or the song Hello, which is a decent idea that I wish was fleshed out into a longer track where the message of this very short cut could be brought home a little bit better. Then there's the two-minute rap song tutorial, which introduces listeners to this monotone, dystopian female robot voice introducing separately different parts of a hip-hop song, the drums, the melody, the hook, etc. It's a cute listen once through, but once you know the humor and the progression of the track, it's painfully tedious, and there's really no reason to hear it ever again. Even if the example song shown in the interlude kinda sounds fire, in fact, I, I would've rather just had this song. There are maybe a few other tracks here as well that I found a little confusing. Like the song Get the F*** Up, I love how this track busts in with another noisy industrial beat. The trio invites Cakes the Killer on once again to deliver a completely fire verse, one that sets the bar for every other feature on the album. The first leg of the track is incredible. It's amazing, but the transition it makes after a minute 30 is a head-scratcher. It totally deflates all the momentum the song had going so far. Sputtering beat, weepy strings, kind of antisocial verses from Richie and Grogs. It just seems like the weirdest place to put this. The segue wasn't all that great either. On top of that, the track ends off on a totally sour note with these repeated samples of JPEG Mafia just saying, Get the f*** up! Pitched at different levels. Sometimes it's low, sometimes it's chipmunk, but every time it's annoying. And not to say that's on JPEG Mafia and that I'm unhappy with his appearance here, I just wish his feature and his vocals were um, utilized a bit more creatively. And even harder pill to swallow, in my view, in the tracklist here is the song Best Spot in the House, which is a really odd exorcism of emotions, especially for Richie, as he's rapping about being looked up to by his audience and then not feeling like he's living up to the idolization, which I think is a pretty normal reaction for most musicians that find themselves with a fan base. However, instead of agonizing over his shortcomings or analyzing this phenomenon, on a macro level the track comes off more like a lecture to the fan for i don't know selling themselves short or being dumb for idolizing him or them in the first place which is a really odd tone to take especially since even the most hardcore fans understand that nobody's perfect even their favorite artists but everyone needs inspiration and everyone needs something to aspire to and this phenomenon richie is rapping about is more about what the artist does and who they are as an artist versus who they actually are as a person. But this realization seems to elude the song's concept, though. Plus, some of the auto auto-tune vocal breaks on this track just seem really sloppy and tacked on, just tossing something in there because there has to be some sort of refrain, some sort of hook. New Hawaii is another moment on the album that comes in with great intentions, but leaves me feeling underwhelmed. Even if the back end of the track features Richie delivering one of the most beautiful and romantic rap verses of this decade. He describes these kids he plans to have with his significant other as if there Pieces of art, it's kind of beautiful. But everything that brought us up to this point is a total and complete snooze fest. And not that the guest singers throughout the track, especially Dram, are all that bad, they're not. But the beat on this thing is so skeletal and so bare and so scant, it barely supports the song. It's just like background noise. There are some other tracks on here that I liked, though. There's the Cut Wax On featuring Freddie Gibbs, not one of the trio's best dark and nocturnal tracks, but certainly a good one. The heavy drums, the massive bass, the dreary, distant tones, and in the instrumental are all really nice. Grog's verse on the track reflects on the difference between being industry successful and personally successful, socially rich, and financially poor. Meanwhile, the Freddie Gibbs appearance on the track is pretty good. He brings an incredible sync up with the flow of the hook and uh, Grog's verse. And given his previous material on Shadow of a Doubt, the very dark hip-hop songs all over that record, he is a perfect fit for this song. The song Gravy and Biscuits isn't bad, it's one of the shorter and less developed cuts on here, but it's got a fun attitude, some very clever wordplay from Grog's Aunt Richie, and an instrumental that sounds like something Eminem would have rapped on back in the day with, like, these uh, uh playful, groovy beats and uh, funny Latin jazz piano samples. The song What a Year It's Been is a noisy and intense retrospective on everything that's brought the group in the short term up to this point where they're on Loma Vista, they've got quite a bit of recognition, more than they've had in the past, and they are coming out with their new injury reserve album. It is the best track here when it comes to exploring the change and stress and depression that has come along with all these shifts in the group's career. The opening verse from Grogs on this cut is soul-crushing with him talking about being depressed, and being in a funk, and ghosting his loved ones, and so on and so forth. The explosion of drums and psychedelic autotune in the second leg of the track is incredible. It's got a huge, like, Kanye and Travis Scott vibe to it. And then there's the heartwarming and triumphant closer, Three Man Weave, which sees the group off on a positive note, much like the song Look Mama, I Did It, but without as many tears being shed, a few vocal jabs from Fonte of Little Brother fame, which is a sort of funny inclusion on the album given the, uh, line from S on Your Chest where, uh, Richie says Big Pooh is kinda lame. But as far as Richie and Grog's verses go, I love how they play into all these themes of sports and basketball and how these things used to matter to them when they were younger and now they've kind of moved on to music and other aspirations. I love that when Richie said he was younger and playing, that uh, by hip-hop standards, he was Russ decent. As good as as Russ, the rapper. Russ. Russell. Overall, it's a decent album. Not as consistent as Dentist Office or Floss, in my opinion, sadly. Not as full of as many futuristic and hard-hitting cuts as I thought it might be due to uh, some of the singles. But still, what Injury Reserve has accomplished on Injury Reserve is a cut above most of what you're going to find out there in the current rap field today. I'm feeling a light to decent 7 on this thing. Hey buddy, did you hear the news? It's track review. The god, Florida rapper Denzel Curry. He has a new project on the way. He is not spending 2019 silent. Even though last year the dude totally killed it with his taboo album, he is coming back very soon with another one, 12 tracks, 29 minutes. Sounds like it is going to be pretty to the point and hard hitting. I'm going to give a try to the track Speedboat from the forthcoming project. If you guys remember on this channel, I have already done a track review of the track Ricky with my buddy Luis shout out to him. And uh, Ricky is a pretty great track. Great instrumental, fantastic hook. I love the feelings of uh, familial love and appreciation of uh, one's friends, longtime friends, day ones that have stuck with you through all the changes and everything like that. Let's see if uh, Speedboat echoes the same emotions, different emotions. Let's, Let's go. Let's see what this song has to offer. It's a three minutes, 42 seconds. The title is Speedboat. It's got to be badass. I, I guess we'll see. Denzel Curry, Speedboat, Zoo, new project on the way. Uh, ba-bam. Okay, Speedboat. Not a bad track at all. A track essentially about getting out of one's incredibly bad circumstances and uh, finding yourself in a spot where, shockingly, you are doing well. You are uh, just swimming in money, essentially. Foreign bank accounts. Uh, Your friend didn't make it past 21, so you have to make it past 24, so on and so forth. Uh, Essentially, this juxtaposition of where you are and the uh, horrible path that you could have been on if you didn't luck out here, essentially, and uh, and and end up where you are. The instrumental, in my view, is pretty run of the mill for a trap beat, though it, it is well put together. You know, those rattling hi hats, the heavy sub bass, the uh, uh, very dramatic piano arpeggios, and all that. If there's anything stunning about the beat, it's really the the few vocal breaks on the track where it's it's like all of a sudden we're getting like these gospel vocals. Uh, that sort of, uh, it's, it's almost like, you know, you're praying for another day, you're praying that things get better, da da There's certainly like an element of of faith and, and hope and fear uh, laced throughout this track that is pretty intense. Denzel's flow, if you've been listening to everything the dude has been doing up until this point, um, isn't really anything you haven't heard before, though, again, I do like his lyrics, I do like his verses on this track quite a bit. Now that I'm hearing this, and now that I'm hearing Ricky, and I'm looking at the track list, and I'm seeing the brevity of it, and I'm seeing, you know, kind of the mix of features here, and I'm seeing uh, what could possibly be like the quality of the tracks on this thing, I'm getting a, a kind of a sense that this project could like be another 13 EP, which was a good EP. It was a good project, but it was nowhere near as ambitious and as hard hitting as Imperial or as uh, obviously taboo. And, uh, you know, this leads me to believe that Zoo could most certainly be like a great hard hitting record with a lot of good bangers on it. But maybe it's it's more like a transitional moment or just something very basic and in your face and uh, very direct to keep fans held over for when Denzel eventually puts out another record where it's like a you know, epic uh, (laughs) three-part masterpiece or something like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, liked the track, thought it was pretty cool. Um, Not one of the best, I think, Denzel has ever put out, but the dude rarely puts out trash. Even when he's in a mode where he's obviously not trying to write from a place of incredible ambition, uh, the lyrics are still there. The flows are still there. It's, you know, a decent instrumental choice. Uh, There are at least, like, some great melodic lines in denzel's flow and uh, and again those vocal breaks on here they're incredible so um yeah i I think i'm gonna leave it at that this is a really good track uh maybe drew on a little too long at three minutes and 42 seconds for what it is but uh but still very likable very enjoyable Uh, another reason to be excited for this forthcoming denzel project very soon coming uh toward the end of this month zoo 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 speedboat forever Thank you very much, everyone, for listening to this latest edition of the Needle Drop Podcast. You're the best, you're the best, you're the best, you're the best. Make sure to hit up our social media, The Needle Drop, as well as a Fantano on Instagram and Twitter, youtube.com slash the needle drop, youtube.com slash fantano. Don't miss a single piece of content or a video that we drop every week. And we will hear you guys, we will see you guys, we will read you guys in the next episode. Also, shout out to Jonah for assembling this one, as well as he does every edition of the Needle Drop podcast. Make sure to subscribe and rate and maybe even write a review of this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to it on as well. That helps out the show quite a bit. And uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Anthony Fantano, the Needle Drop podcast of forever.